So we finally ended the book of Leviticus last week, and many of you rejoiced. Um, we'll take it personally. Right. Um, but uh, we, during our journey to the book of Leviticus, walked with Psalm 119. Um, and so this is almost like a, a coda to all the weeks we spent in Leviticus to sort of revisit Psalm 119. Now, as many of you know, Psalm 119 is, is the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, it's not really a chapter as a psalm, but, but it's the longest sort of portion of scripture that you can read if you're doing like a chapter a day. Um, and it's about 176 verses. And so we had about 13 uh, Sundays in Leviticus. Some of you would say it felt like 26. Um, but, but we had about 13 Sundays of walking with the book of Leviticus. And so one of the things that I thought when we paired this with it is, you know, this is the best idea. Take the psalm nobody wants to read and pair it with the book that nobody wants to read and see what magic comes from it. Um, but one of the things I thought about is the psalmist in Psalm 119 was so concerned about praising God's law, praising God's Torah is, the, is one of the Hebrew words that he uses for it, that I thought like one of the best things you can do if you don't understand something is, is go to somebody who loves that thing, right? So like if you don't understand a coworker, but you go to a Christmas party and you meet your spouse and you're like, I still think they're weird. But having talked with that spouse, I finally sort of understand some of that person's redeeming qualities. Um, story of my life with Kelly, who was sick today. Oh, having met Kelly, I see why people maybe can't put up with Matt. Um, I can say, she always says, you say nice things when I'm not there. Um, another irredeeming quality. Um, but I thought it'd be good to spend time with somebody who loves this thing. To somebody who wants to praise this thing, somebody who, who brings so much life out of this thing that is this Torah, this book. Um, and it goes on and on with it for about 176 verses. And so I thought to come near to somebody who, who really loves that and gains instruction from it, who, who sort of lives and breathes it, would be good for us to hear the praises at the start of our service. But the, the psalm, as we've talked about, is structured on the Hebrew alphabet, which and it makes it such a a challenging thing to sort of read in English. Uh, because in the, in the Hebrew alphabet, this poem is sort of an acrostic. Now, many of you in your Bibles, it, it's taken on more form in, in more modern Bibles. With Psalm 119, you have letters at the top, right? Um, and that would be like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. There are 22 sections to this with the 22 letters. Now, some of you are, are wise people and are counting that and saying there's more than 22 letters up there. They have, uh, some of those letters are the final form of the letter. So if you take out the ones that say final, which you obviously can't read from your seats, um, there's 22 letters up there. And so it's this acrostic poem that goes through these 22 letters beginning to end as if to say all of language is even sort of bound up in this, this law, this Torah, these decrees, which I worship and love. But what's interesting is, is not only are each of these um, the start of a section, so Brian read two sections to start the service. I read one section during worship, and then Jamie read two sections um, before the sermon. Each of these sections, every line begins with that letter as well. So the beauty of the book, the beauty of Psalm 119, if, if, you're, if you're an English reader, you just don't see it. That he's writing these things out in this way. Now, one of my favorite sections of it, and we don't do this in English, 
is he got to a letter, and I don't know enough Hebrew, but the only word he knew was and. And so it's and, 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 and. All eight lines begin with the word and. Um, if you're like me, you had English teachers who said you can't begin a sentence with and. And then you read, like, books, all of them, and they start with and. And you just say, we're trying to save you from sloppy writing. Um, sorry, Betty. Uh, uh, so that's sort of like, he has these sort of ways in which he lays that out over and over again. And almost every line, except for uh, two noticeable exceptions, contain one of the words that he sort of uses to summarize that which he's praising. There's eight terms that sort of move throughout the Bible, or throughout this psalm. Torah, decrees, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, ordinances, words, and promise. Now, if that's English, they all have... So if you're thinking that each of these words is um, like translators, we've talked about this before with different books, translators tend to get bored if one word appears over and over again. The classic example is the book of Mark, where it says immediately like a hundred times. And so translators say, and then, and then, because apparently they're not earning their money if they just keep translating the same word immediately. Um, with this psalm, those words are actually all distinct Hebrew words. But every line, except for one, contains one of those words. And not only that, not only does every line except for one contain one of those words, is that one can, a couple of them contain it twice. And so this psalm has like this beauty to it in that it sort of moves through all those words in a way that brings life to us. Now, Torah in your Bible is most likely translated law, um, but that's sort of the, the word that sort of starts it off that occurs the most. And so this book moves through all these letters and each of these in eight verses for 176 verses. And so that's the way in which this book is sort of, this psalm is structured. And I think the order of it actually can begin to speak to us, the order of this sort of way of doing it. I think there's this challenge for us is that the book can seem, this psalm can seem boring and repetitive, Right. And the challenge for me each week is we sort of read one portion. We didn't get through the whole thing, but we'll finish it today. At the end of the sermon, we'll read the last section together. Um, but as you go through each section, I think if you slow yourself down enough, you see something in there that proclaims something to you. For instance, Brian's lack of sleep. But even more so, if you look at like the second, the second section contains this thing that sort of projects this as wisdom literature. It says, how shall a young person learn their paths? It's through the law in the second section. But one of the ones I think speaks to us the most in the modern world comes from the third section, which says, I'm a sojourner here on earth. I'm a stranger here on earth. I'm an alien here on earth, is all the ways you can translate that. As the psalmist sort of says, that I'm somebody who has... Um, no bearing. I'm somebody in a foreign land, in a foreign place, here on earth. And as often, I think, times, we wake up in the middle of life, and I think I'm quoting the talking heads when I say this, that, that you say, how did I get here? You know, we have these, is, is that right, Ray? Is that the talking heads, yeah? Uh, how did I get here? Um, but the reason why that song resonates and why it sold so well is because it seems like something that happens to us. We wake up in, in, in the morning, or we stay up too late, or we we go out, and one of the things we wonder is, how did I get here? How did my life come to this? How did my life come to, to two kids, a car payment, a house payment, uh, 
these things that summarize me. How did my life come to a job that now I resent at 45? How did I, how did I move into this space? Is that we come to these places and we say, I'm lost here on earth. These things don't make sense to me. And what the psalmist says to that is, for your decrees will guide me, for your word would be with me. Do not hide your commands from me, is sort of the, the way that the psalmist sort of ends with that, is to say that when I come to this place in life where I feel like there's a stranger and that I'm lost, is that there's this way in which God's commandments, God's law, God's word, God's thoughts about how we might live actually can reorient us. They may not have uh, all the answers for the for the 30s existential crisis you might be having. Um, it's biographical. Um, <laughs> not right now. It's happened. Um, but they have this way of sort of like guiding and placing yourself and so that you know where to move and to respond. They sort of give you an orientation that help you guide throughout the world. And so that's why one of the other governing certain metaphors is this, is that the word is a lamp for my feet. It's a guide for my path. So it becomes this thing not that makes the path or is the path, but is a way that illuminates the way that I move on the path. See, this is this is one of the ways in which you can think about like how do people read the Bible? Like there are some people who read the Bible as if it were the path, right? But Psalm 119 talks about how it illumines the path and guides you forward and brings you places, but it's not just the path itself. That God is, in some sense, the comforts that with you. It's, it's the one that sort of brings you into the ways of righteousness. But it's not the path itself. It's out before you. One of my favorite metaphors about this, when I was thinking about this this week, is how like a compass works for us if we're, if we're using maps. Now, I know they talk about, if you've ever read any of the articles, on how most of us are um, disorientedly blind to like where north, south, east, and west is, all because of Google. Um, and that, like, most people can't even really navigate their own towns anymore. That's, that's true to some degree. But we live in a valley, so we at least know which way is that way and which way is this way. So we've got helpful orientation properties in our world. And so one of the things about this, this compass metaphor that was getting to me was the idea of how, when we used to do this in science class, we would bring magnets near them. And the thing that a magnet does is it has this tendency to throw off your compass. It makes it sort of spin. And I was, I was thinking about this metaphor of how God's word is like a map for us on these paths, or a guide for us on these paths, is that like there are things that come into our lives that make things spin off. And the weird part about when you bring a magnet close to a compass is it like can't even find its, its north or its center anymore. It's not so much that it's spinning and lost, but it's that it's actually just permanently disarranged. And, I, and as I thought about that, and I thought about God's sort of law and relationship to us, is how, like, there are things that come into my life that I sit next to that just permanently throw off whichever direction I can find to get home or get going. It's so much so that it almost makes the tool useless. It just sits there and makes it dysfunct. It makes it broken, right? It makes it so hard to read. And so Psalm 119 has this way of thinking about it as the guide for that. And he has this way of looking at the challenges that come to us, these things that can just throw us off that path, that can make it hard for us to sort of move through this world. So it's this lamp, it's this guide, it's this, it's this compass for us, and it leads and guides us. There's another way of looking at it is, is if you were to say that God is our teacher 
sort of guides some early parts of the psalm, that creation is the classroom. It sort of guides sort of the second part. And one of the things I like about creation as a classroom is we tend to think of that as like, um, creation is a term in Christian circle that's most often used for like enjoying God's creation. You never talk about the ways in which God's creation is still cursed because of the fall or something like that. You might if you're weird, but most of us use that in a positive sense. But the way I think the psalmist means that is the context of your ordinary daily life is the classroom. It's the place in which this is going to be worked out. It's not some perfect place far away. It's not some lesson for some other time or some other place. But it's in the context of your daily lived experience that this will be worked out, that, that the creation will be your classroom for this. The second is that the servants, students are the servants of God. To become a student to this thing is to become a servant to God and the world. The third is the lesson is the law of God, which uh, or the fourth, which is like the whole psalm right there. And the last is that learning is the way of life. That this psalm comes for us as one, as sort of like sojourners in our place, too. That we begin on this life of learning with it and moving towards the better places that God has for us. And so one of the things to say about the structure is I return, C.S. Lewis has a, a helpful little book on the Psalms that um, is worth bringing to. But one of the things he talked about it is he said, the order of the divine mind embodied in divine law is beautiful. Just something the psalmist sees clearly. We've just finished the book of Leviticus, and I doubt many of us would say that the order embedded in it is beautiful. But we live very ordered and calm and confident lives. We almost make our lives so that we don't feel the disorder that's around us. But what God provides for his people in this is this thing that the psalmist considers beautiful. C.S. Lewis says, what should a man do but try to be reproduce it as far as possible in his daily life? His delight in those statutes to study them is like finding treasure. That's verse 14. They affect him like music are his songs. They taste like honey, 103. They are better than silver and gold. As one eyes are opened more and more, one sees more and more in them and excites in wonder. It's verse 18. This is a man ravished by mortal beauty. If we cannot share this experience, we shall be the losers. Which I think is part of the struggle with this psalm and in the book of Leviticus is if we can't share in these things, there's somebody's life who's diminished by that, and that becomes our own. Now, the hard part about, about Psalm 119 is it's, it's very direct on sort of the path and the ways that we should go. It sort of has a clear answer for everything. But that's not to be a hindrance, too. One of the things that came to me is, is I was thinking about the Psalms proclaim of who God is and this poetic way he is expressing it is that these are God's thoughts about how to live life. What he's in love with is directions that the divine has given him. What he's in love with is the life that he's found through this. So this isn't just like he's in love with a static book. For him, for the psalmist, this is alive and active. This is something that moves. This is something that moves him. 
it's a that verse where he compares it to music. It's almost as if the psalmist dances to God's law. Now, that I think is a challenging image for us because those are not the ways we respond to sort of divine command. There's not the ways that we sort of look at God's law. I mean, in Christian circles, it's the most use we can normally come for it is it just shows us how we're flawed and fractured so that we can receive the healing touch of Jesus. Which is true. The law is a mirror to ourselves and in our lives. It shows us where we have this fracturedness in it. And the psalmist, even from the beginning, is aware that he needs God's help in this. He's not going to be able to live this perfectly only through his own sheer word power. But what happens when we see that fractured image of ourselves is that the Spirit sort of intercedes for us is the way the New Testament um, thinks about this and then directs us into the ways of life that are profitable, that are wise, that are, in the psalmist's words, law. <laughs> that they, the, the Spirit comes not just to, to sort of um, help us feel better that we're fractured, but actually to help repair us and heal us. Now there's this way that I think we think about grace sometimes is that grace for most Christians is this term that means sort of like a trash can, right? So grace is like where the bad things go that I've done. God's grace takes those things up and forgives them. It's not a bad way to think about grace, but it's but it's a limited way to think about grace because what happens according to the New Testament is grace comes to us even in our prayers. Grace comes to us in our attempts to do better. Grace comes to us in our attempts to sort of live a healing life. We often think grace is just there for the mistakes I've made. It is there for the mistakes you've made, but it's also there for the past you might take forward. God meets us in there. God, God comes to our side and walks with grace with us towards a new path and a new life. God doesn't just abandon us to where we were. And for the psalmist, this becomes very real for him. There's another word that occurs in this psalm over and over again, which is truth, that, that, that these psalms are truth. And C.S. Lewis, again, had a helpful thing to think about here. For there were other roads which lacked truth. The Jews had as in their mind their immediate neighbors close to them in race and as well as position, pagans of the worst kind, pagans whose religion was marked none by the beauty or sometimes wisdom which can be found among the Greeks. The backstory back made the beauty or sweetness of the law more visible. Not the least because of these neighboring paganism were a constant temptation to the Jew, and in some of their externals may have not been unlike their own religion. The temptation was to turn to those terrible rites in times of terror, when, for example, the Assyrians were pressing on. We, who not so long ago waited daily for invasion by enemies like the Assyrians, he's referring to um, World War II is that we, we, we had this temptation to turn to other gods. They were tempted, and since the Lord seemed deaf, to try those appalling deities who demanded much more and might therefore give much more in return. But when a Jew in some happy hour, or a better Jew even in that hour, looked at those worships, he thought of sacred prostitution, temple sex, and babies thrown into the fires for Moloch. Human sacrifice is one of the things that governs what's around the Jews at this time. His own law, as he turned back to it, must have shone with an extraordinary, extraordinary radiance, sweeter than honey. 
Or if that metaphor does not suit us, who does not have such a sweet tooth as all ancient peoples, partially because we have plenty of sugar, let us say like mountain water, like fresh air after a dungeon, like sanity after a nightmare. And for the psalmist to praise God's laws, to look at what they're surrounded by. And this is the hard part for us in our culture, is, is to look at what we're surrounded by and to see the destruction that can come from it, to see the dehumanizing that can come from it. And this happens, I mean, you can think about it in many different ways, from, from sort of like holiness things, from, from pornography, what it does and distorts young people is, is I think Utah is the only state that's considered a public health crisis at the moment to the ways in which sort of like we create injustice for people who work 80 hours a week and then go bankrupt with, without access to health insurance. We create these systems that dehumanize people in other ways. Um, these are all things in which we can look around and say, in which ways is God's law of rightness for us? Which way is God's law like fresh air after a dungeon? It's not something we often do in our church, and it's not something many churches often do, but to, but to say, in turn, to look to God's law in the way that it offers a different kind of worship. You know, one of my favorite stories that I tell, that I've told semi-often, is that the story of a, a couple who missed their daughter's wedding because she had put it on the day that the University of Tennessee had a home game. If that's not child sacrifice, you know, a modern version of child sacrifice. I don't know what it is to, to sort of move in those places. Like, that, that Tennessee football was more important than their daughter's wedding. Like, we have these things that distort and disform ourselves in our own way. And while the psalmist prays for this law might seem more foreign to us, I don't think that's the way that we should handle it. And so we have this way of maybe perhaps turning back to it. Now, the, the next image I just want to say a little bit about, I've been listening to this podcast, Mountain and Prairie, if you're a podcast person, and it's about life in the West, you know, these people in life in the West. But he was interviewing the artist that came up with a logo for him, and he says he emailed the artists, and this is generally how my conversations go with artists, is he said, okay, well, here's what I want. I want some mountains, I want some prairie, maybe a horse, um, man, some wildlife, like, all his dreams for this logo, he sort of projected onto this artist. And this artist, being wise, this is in an interview with him, this is what he turns back into him. And the guy who asked for everything said, That's how did you take all that I wanted and put it in one photo? How did you take all that I wanted and make it in one thing? And then in the interview, they start talking about how white space for them isn't empty space. The artist says, you know, if you look at this image, you look at this image of this buffalo, it doesn't take long before you imagine it in your streams. Or a mountain appears behind it in your, in your sort of memory of seeing one. Or that life becomes, sort of fills in the gaps. The reason why I'm showing this is one, because I thought that was a cool story. But even more so is I think that this is the psalmist's focus on the law. The psalmist's focus on the law is, is so much that, like, this is the one thing, this is the image of the, of the buffalo that sort of is, is present to you. But what for the psalmist happens is everything else begins to fill in around him. It's not as if his life begins to not matter because he's solely focused on this one thing. 
That would be confusing the buffalo for like what you're going to eat. When in fact, what the buffalo is meant to call mind is the places in which it's it's there for your life. Now, now it's losing its path. But the, what the law is is there to meant to to call into mind where it's there for your life, where it is that land, where it is that compass, where where it is that comfort, where it actually provides something. And what it what do you say about the other gods is that they demand much more, and perhaps they can give much more. When the temptation comes to in the New Testament, there's a, there's a name for this God that's that's Mammon, which is which is what we would call money. Sure, it demands much more, but maybe it can give much more. And for the psalmist, that this this sort of obsession with this one thing begins to appear in a place where it says the rest of life, the rest of your memory for this will be filled in around it. You didn't need the mountain, the prairie, the horse the elk and all that stuff to get what Mountain and Prairie the podcast is about. But through one image, you fill in the rest of those things. And I think that's the way that this can begin to work for us. So the next thing is this, this quote, which we've, we've used before, but is one that I often come back to, which is to be a witness, which is what I think the psalmist through his obsession with God's law is trying to be. To be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up. But in being a living mystery means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. I think it's the challenge that comes before us is if we read Psalm 19, is is what does it mean to be a witness to the reality of God's kingdom that's taking place among us? One side note that I forgot to say is that you could read law as Jesus now with the New Testament, but this is a praise to Jesus. But, but what does it mean to become a witness? And one of the ways in which we see this in the modern world is to become a witness of something sometimes means to engage in propaganda. Or it means to engage in giving, arousing speech, arousing music to get the people going. But what the Cardinal uh, of the Catholic Church here says is that it would be to become sort of a living mystery. And to have your lives lived in such a way that if it turns out that the God that you worship didn't exist, it wouldn't make any sense. Sacrifice is one of the ways that this changes. Um, there are ways in which we can do this with beauty, with goodness and truth, which is really what the psalmist is after here with God's law, is that it becomes ways for him to sort of become this engaged witness in what God is doing in the world, to be a witness to what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so the last image that we have for us as we end Psalm 119 comes from today's reading on the back of the bulletin. This is the last line of the psalm. It's interesting to me that this psalm ends with a call for God's rescue. It's after all this praise that he sort of turns to him and he says to him that he cries out for him to come near. That rescue is what comes to his lips here at the end. May your hand be ready to help me. Let me live that I might praise your name. I love this last line, that I've strayed like a lost sheep. It's almost like that story. There were 99 sheep, but that one had gone astray. The man leaves the 99 to find the one. The story that Jesus tells us in Luke 15. It's easy as you go through Psalm 119 to be like, that's not me. This is not my joy, my comfort, my life. 
but it leaves this gap with its last line to say that, for I am like a sheep who, say, uh, who has lost its way. Seek your servant. That God would seek and find us in the paths of lives. So as we close in prayer, I'll invite you to read this last portion with me. And we will have heard all of Psalm 119 in our church, which is puts us in like some percentile that's very high. Or depending on what you think, very low. But either way, it's unique. God, we thank you for the ways in which your law is like honey for us. We live here as people, as sojourners on earth, as strangers on earth, asking that you would not hide this from us. God, help us to see beauty in what seems so plain. Help us for the familiarity we have with parts of Scripture to become strange to us again so that we can hear it anew. Help us to find our paths and our lives before you. Now we read together the last line of this psalm. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with grace. May I teach your decrease. May my song sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your presence. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and my laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have forgotten the words. Amen.